you know, a, a reverb decay time that the last note was still decaying as the last car was leaving the parking lot and out <laughs> here. So it's just that's just the, the worst nightmare. So no, I will not go Julio on you. I well, will, that's nice. I will stay close. That's nice. I've seen so many singers just back away from the mic and bring their voice down at the same time. I, so that high note, you just don't hear it. Go, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm always looking at the song, and I, and I do believe I heard that um, on a night that you were uh, that you were doing the sound. And I was looking at you, and I was saying that he must be freaking out. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 on a regular basis, yeah. Well, what do you know? The Backstage Cowboys podcast is back on the air. <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? Well, it was Christmas, and I took some time off. I don't see anything wrong with that, right? <laughs> By the way, um, there's the USITT thing coming up in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I'll be there at the Spotlight booth, and I hope you're going to come down and meet me so that we can get acquainted, see who you are, see who I am, whatever that means. Okay, who do we have on this episode? Richard Forte. Good friend of mine, Richard, FOH sound guy. Born in Cuba, raised in New York, and moved to Montreal for some reason. This guy has got a lot of stories to tell. It was an amazing interview. I just loved it. I would have taken another two hours of it. This has got to be the longest-running interview I've ever done. And well worth it. Believe me, stick till the end. You're, you're going to get a kick out of this one. Do I have a band? Oh, God. You guys back from vacation yet? <laughs> All right, cue it. Let's go now. back in my office in Saint Laurent, Quebec. Um, we did this crappy setup here because I forgot half my stuff at home. <laughs> I've been yeah, I've been playing the bass lately and I've been using my kit to play the bass more than recording podcasts because it was Christmas time and I took some time off. Um, so um, I have, uh, can I say Richie or Richard? What was the best? Richard Forte is on my website. Yeah. Friends call me Richie. Okay. Everybody, you know, I think if you refer to me as Richard in this town, people may kind of not know what, you, get, what I'm talking they, about. They, they may not. Um, but, um, you know, Richie and, and baseball caps are kind of in the same category. You know, <laughs> you reach a certain age where, you know, guys just shouldn't wear baseball caps at a certain point. And uh, so I, I, I started to use Richard more, but there's still a lot of stuff in print with Richie. So take your pick because you know yeah. me as you know we're friends. You call me Richie. Okay. Anyway, it's fortesound.com, so whatever. Uh I like Richie because it's been Richie for years for me. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to start by saying that Richard Forte in front of me, just I'm going to be official just for this once, has started doing sound a long time ago, and I do believe that shortly after they invented the speaker or something like that, right? And uh, before we start, I, I want to apologize for the 
crappy mic stand. I, as I said, I, I left my stuff at home and uh, I even forgot my mic holder. So I'm actually talking into a crappier mic than you. Like you got the crappy mic stand and I got the crappy mic. So, you know, we're even now. And funny enough, to me, we sound the same. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> but what know. do I know about sound? <laughs> the thud you hear will be the failure of the mic stand. <laughs> I think we're okay. Yeah, well, we like life stuff, so that's all good. So, uh, Richie, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. I'm very happy to be here. And, and we had a debate whether we, we were doing this here or at your house, and it all depended on the coffee, I believe, or something. We're actually drinking coffee. This is a first for me. Uh, normally, it's wine or beer, and uh, we decided to behave on this one for some reason <laughs> yeah we'll get, we'll get to the b stories uh accompanied with uh you know the the right spirit at some other time well, we've been on several gigs together i was going through your website uh fortesound.com and uh i i saw something that made me smile i saw nikki yanowski uh yanowski I, I know you've been working with her um i did uh her I think what was her first uh, full-scale show at Place des Arts uh, many years ago. She was just a kid. I mean, I don't even know if she was 12 at the time. You know what? Bef before the Place des Arts show, uh, she opened the Montreal Jazz Festival, the Festival wow. International de Jazz, the youngest artist to ever open the show. She was show one outdoors next to the big stage, not on the big stage, but... She literally kicked off the uh, that that year's festival, and she was, I think, eleven years old, okay. and that was that was pretty much her official launch. Okay, you know, yeah. uh, under her banner with her band, wow. um, and um, um, I was there. I've been there since since that show. Mm. Oh, so you've been doing all of her gigs? Yeah. Well, um, she's currently on hiatus um kind of between projects mm -hmm. uh not very active at the moment so i consider myself on hiatus too as opposed to no longer working with her okay uh i fingers crossed that that she uh, uh takes some time and comes back strong you know which i i wouldn't be i wouldn't be a bit surprised okay yeah she's she's a, a great artist and uh and it's been fun watching her grow up because they're from 11 to, you know, now she's like 23. 23, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's been uh, it, it's been great having a front row seat for that. Yeah, isn't that great? We have some phenomenons coming out of Montreal here. And we have the possibility of working with these people and watching them grow internationally. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah I've traveled all over with her. And what's 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 great about, about Nikki is that uh, over the years, she's had so many gone through so many different styles of music and format you know everything from like a three-piece uh you know four-piece uh jazz like a jazz trio to full symphony orchestras and rhythm sections and in major concert halls and and in locations really unlikely locations like uh at the foot of the library of ephesus in in turkey wow. uh you know which is this historical uh just a breathtaking uh backdrop for a for an outdoor performance yeah uh they don't do many because these are these ruins are you know they're very delicate mm -hmm. and uh they, that kind of traffic they don't do a lot of those and we had uh the good fortune of playing an outdoor show 
at, right at the library. Wow. You know, in the ruins. It was beautiful. That's cool. Hey, you know what, Richie? Normally when I do these interviews, I have like a, a set of questions in front of me just in case we kind of go uh, blank on something. Um, in this case, I did not uh, print a set of questions because I don't think we will need that. <laughs> in your particular case, I think we have a lot more stuff to talk about than any questions I might have. Um, but I do I'm have... I'm glad you're inspired. Uh, uh, very, them. very. <laughs> I do have two uh, specific questions, though. I'd like to... First, first of all, I'd like to know what you're up to now, what you're doing at the moment, and I'd like to know how it all started. Okay. Um, currently, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much holding uh, the same pattern of the last couple of years where I have a, uh, a small but... Uh, reliable client base of corporate bands and regional sound companies that I'm fortunate enough to have gained their trust and and made my way to the top of the first call list. And so between the four or five uh, different clients, I'm working very steady and uh, not as steady, not steady in the sense of a nine to five Monday through Friday. Like, no, like nobody like, does like the, that. Like the business. real, yeah, no, nobody does that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's just so, it, it's just so strange because, uh, I guess by definition, you know, when you're working at the end of the year, cause as you know, first quarter, you know, it's slow. There's mm -hmm. really not a lot of yep. shows, especially because of the weather. Uh, so many cancellations. You try to do a tour of Canada in the winter and you're going to lose a lot of money because you're not going to make all the dates and you're going to be refunding tickets and, yeah, yeah. and trucks are going to break down. It's just a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is the slow period. So this is my vacation time. Mm -hmm. But uh, come March, things, that's when things pick up all the way to December. Like by the end of March till December, things things start getting pretty busy. So August so, doesn't drop anymore. Like when I was active, like more active, let's say, uh, on the on-call thing um, many years back. August was also a quiet period, but I think that's over now, right? Interestingly enough, there is a dip in August, but this August was really cool because one of my clients got a corporate uh, contract to um, provide the entertainment for two private cruises. And oh. this, yeah, a really big company. I don't think I'm allowed to mention the company, um, but needless to say, uh, the ships were major, you know, mm. like frontline, very well-known uh, cruise ships and with a capacity of 35 to 4,500 people. And there were only... 1,500 to 1,800 people on the ship and everything was open to everybody wow. and there was entertainment every night and the band would break down into several different components. Mm. We'd have like the main, the big show was like on the first day and on the last day, like the big with the full band. And the other nights, the band would break down into, you know, jazz, cocktail, uh, four-piece power rock, yeah. you know, in different <laughs> venues on the ship. And uh, they brought a sound company from, uh, from New Jersey to provide the, for the, for the Caribbean cruise. It was a company out of Jersey and they brought, uh, 
Oh, which oh, I think one of them, or maybe they were both um, acoustic and Yamaha and just really, you know, proper, proper production. And, mm. and that was a lot of fun because we had the days off and the second cruise was in the Mediterranean through Italy. So days off is like Rome, Naples, okay. Corsica, yeah. you know, just get off the <laughs> ship. And, and then, you know, you come back and you do like an hour show. And, and, and that was really cool. And, that, and both of those were in August. Okay. So, so that was the exception. Uh, but normally, yeah, August does slow down. But what perfect timing. Hmm. For a gig like this, yeah, you know, where you get to, it's kind of like a working vacation. Yeah. So that worked out really well this year. Oh, that's cool. And all right, so let's go back to the beginning and work our way up. Uh, I'd like to understand uh, where you're coming from, what's, you, uh, what's your background, how it all started, how'd you get into this mess? Uh, uh, I mean, the, this, this line of work. Oh, uh, you know, that, that's, <laughs> well, uh, boy, it really comes down to influences, I guess. Um you know, first and foremost, uh, I'm the youngest of three, and uh, and my the middle brother, the one that uh, that I I was uh, shared, you know, close quarters, me and him in a very small room. Uh, my brother George had impeccable taste in music in the '60s and '70s. He was really listening to the best of the best. And I was five years younger and really didn't have any awareness to music at all, except for the albums that he would bring home. And he would play constantly and constantly threaten me with bodily harm if I went anywhere near those LPs. He would he would sabotage the the album closet with a hair. You know, he'd pluck a hair and lick it and put it across the cabinet. And if the cabinet door opened, you know, then I'd ha the hair would be moved and he'd come back and bust me because, of course, when when he wasn't around i was listening to all this great music but i think i learned more about music from my brother george that uh and I, I, my appreciation of music it was was a direct result of my exposure at a very early age to the best that the mid to late 60s to mid 70s had to offer until of course the tragic disco accident where I think he discovered girls and disco, and that's that's where the girls were. And suddenly, oh, he fell he, into that too he, with the uh, pointy he, shoes he, and all yeah, that. He, yeah, yeah, with the, yeah, yeah, no. he, he did. And <laughs> uh, but by then, you know, I had flown the coop and I was flying solo, and and I pursued my own musical interests. Uh, but um, you know, he, 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 I I I think I uh, I acquired his taste in music, mm -hmm. and then in junior high school. Uh, one of my closest buddies was uh, uh, grew up to be a uh, very successful and uh, and high profile uh, bass player uh, uh, writer for Bass Player Magazine, a couple of best selling books, uh, and um, his name's Ed Friedland. He's currently touring with the Mavericks in the U.S. and like touring like most of the year every year they're on the road uh great bass player but because of him and his acceptance into uh a uh, school in, in manhattan called music and art high school i was raised in manhattan by the way you know oh. I, I i grew up in manhattan from the age of two until i came here i was you know i i was raised in new york city i, I everything that i learned all the, my formative years uh both in and out of the business, all of my education, everything was in New York City. So he got into music and art high school, and that uh, 
became this circle of friends and musicians that, of course, you know, a bunch of musicians, all friends, they're going to jam. And then from jamming, there's going to be a band. Mm. And then from that, there's going to be gigs. And, and I was always on the periphery of that. And originally... I used to uh, I used to jam with these guys on harmonica because I've been playing harmonica. Also, my brother oh. George, brother George is a great harp player, and I kind of picked that up from him, and I I harp, started playing a harp player yeah, harmonica. Yeah, a harmonica. Okay, I was uh, I heard harp. I was uh, really I know somebody that plays harp. I I can't believe it, but okay, false alarm. So, so I was able to kind of participate musically with all these great musicians, but that led to. Um, finding myself uh, through circumstance in a situation where, okay, now these guys are playing and there's a sound system and somebody has to operate the sound system. And, and by the age of uh, God, uh, 14, 15, you know, I was involved with that, but the real turning point came um, in 1974 at Madison square garden uh, for the Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy, uh, you know their song. The you know the the movie. The song remains the same. Yeah, Remember yeah. that? I was there for that show. Wow! And and uh, it was one of my first rock shows. And I remember I knew enough to know that. Well, you want to be between the speakers. You know, you want to catch the show. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be off to the side. You want to be center. And so you know, so I was given the mandate to you know get the center seat and of course so i ended up with seats for me and my buddies that were dead center wow unfortunately it was the top top section at Uh. the back of the arena in literally the last row of the last (laughs) section but i was center and i remember because there was no one behind me we were all sitting on the seat back (laughs) with our backs to the wall watching the show and i had these little opera glasses and i remember watching bonham uh, bashing on the drums and and that was my first lesson and demonstration of latency where <laughs> you know the speed of sound versus the speed of light yeah and so you see him bash the drums and then like uh, about three quarters of a second later you'd get the sound and prior to now of course when we entered you know, we tried to scam our way onto the floor, mm. which, you know, we got busted immediately and kicked out. But while I was on the floor, the first thing I noticed when we, because we, we managed to get onto the floor before getting kicked out. And right in front of the entrance was this scaffold. And on the top of the scaffold was this big console. And this guy was sitting up in front of this desk in, in, a, in an office chair and his feet were up on the desk and he was drinking a beer. And I looked at this guy on the scaffold and I was so blown away because it's like, that's got to be the coolest job on the planet. <laughs> that is, man, this guy has not only is it the coolest job, he's got the best seat in the house. He's I have never seen and not. And to this date, I've never seen a scaffold on the floor of an arena that's like. 15 20 feet high no yeah, it's always on <laughs> the never floor see that. Yeah, yeah and and i think it's because they probably discovered that that's a horrible horrible idea yeah. you know but at the time i guess it was systems were less sophisticated you, hey, didn't you have just time. had to be out of the way that's it yeah, yeah yeah and and you i guess you wanted to be like you know up in the air where all the sound was like wild and free yeah um but you know i i remember looking at this guy in awe and then security caught us 
and we were sent into the into the nosebleeds and i was so disappointed but you know those are the tickets i bought i think i think they were like five dollars or 4.99 or something back then that was big money back then i yeah i know i i I think i think the big dollar like on the floor there were 750 so seven dollars and 50 cents just to be clear because today you know, you can go seven hundred and fifty dollars oh, to a yeah. scalper to get on the floor. Back then, you could get a pack of cigarettes for fifty cents, I think. Or something yeah, like that. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, the other takeaway from that seat in the back was that I noticed immediately, and was heartbroken over that was the fact that it was such a plane crash. It was the worst sound mm. I had ever imagined. It was absolutely, but mostly because. I was a mile away from the stage yeah. and it's Madison square garden. It's very live. And it just, it, it was, it was a total plane crash. And I remember thinking to myself, Holy shit, I could do a better job than that. <laughs> I mean, like if I were mixing, it would be, I, I would never have sound like this. I could do a much better job than that. And that's what planted the seed that in, in, in conjunction with, uh, you know, uh, working with my friend Ed and his musician friends, mm. and and all of that came together, uh, and uh, and and that's what that's what set the direction. And I I went to my uh, to my mother and 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 told her I, I think I was at fifteen years old. I said, well, you know, I know what I want to do. And <laughs> and my mother, being very supportive and the saint that she was, uh, she you know she was all ears and completely open to you know wanting. Okay, you you know you found something. Okay, what is it? And and I told her, and and it turned out that that summer there was a course, and it was a brand new course. It was the first year that it was offered. Um, NYU had a uh, it was kind of an offshoot of NYU called the before the Recording Institute of America, or no, the Institute of Audio Research. That's what it was. What the, is NYU? At New York University. Okay. Yeah, down uh, in Greenwich Village. Okay. And uh, and so NYU was to open a, a a kind of a I don't I don't know what to call it an annex or a, a, an affiliated school that was dedicated to the recording arts and and it was called the Institute of Audio Research and um, but before the Institute of Audio Research the the precursor to that was was a program that was that was a summer course that was offered. It was very small, limited number of students. I think there were maybe twelve of us in total, mm. and it was called um, uh, Recording Institute of America. And I I told her about the course, and she found the money and enrolled me. And I spent that summer at a studio that was right next door, literally, to Studio 54, right on 54th oh. Street. If you stood in front of Studio 54, the first door on the left is a glass door with stairs that went down. Mm-hmm. That was Odeo Studios. And Odeo Studios went on to become Soundworks. Uh, the The owner of Odeo, and this was like a high-tech, this was like a, a cutting-edge, world-class studio. And... Uh, the owner passed away shortly after, and it was sold by his uh, by his wife, and it became a uh, Soundworks, and that's where Donald Fagan did Nightfly. 
So this was like a really, and that was, and and that was one of the first digital albums, uh, Nightfly. That one was all digital. That was one of the the early DDD albums recorded digitally, what, mixed what year digitally. What uh, Nightfly, I think, was nineteen eighty seven or nineteen eighty six. I I but I took this course in the seventies. Oh. Okay, so it was still Odo Studios, and the engineer that was teaching the course was a engineer by the name of Jeff Adder. And as luck would have it, um, after all our classes, he, you know, he was the, he, he was working on a project there. I don't know if he was the resident engineer or whether he was just brought in, but as luck would have it, Eric Carmen was in the studio mm-hmm. doing that, that iconic uh, his iconic hit uh, that Celine covered all by myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that was Eric Carmen originally. Celine, okay. Celine did a cover of that. Yeah. But Eric Carmen was in the process of doing that album. He was formerly from the group Bread. I don't know if you remember. I heard. You're yeah. old enough. I you heard. Know? Yeah, 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 I heard of Bread. This is really, yeah. this is really going yeah. back. Man. This, is, <laughs> this is really going back. But um, I remember uh, I, I was so... I was so into this course and it was such a game changer. And that's where I learned all the fundamentals. Now it was mostly in regard to studio recording more than, more than live, but the fundamentals in audio are the same, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the electronics, acoustics, sound microphones, how they work, selection, placement, all that. So I learned that from Jeff Adder at this course and, and I, a couple of courses, into the program i was offered the opportunity to stick around and be a fly on the wall and run cables and uh wow and so i ran the cables and was responsible that's right i was the guy that got the coffee for all by myself <laughs> that's I, a golden I opportunity i think they gave me a credit on the record uh, coffee uh, richie forte um <laughs> but that was that was really exciting and who knew you know that how big that record was going to be I, I take absolutely no credit except for the coffee <laughs> well, a lot of guys started out that way. Well, you know what? Yeah. It was inspiring. It was inspiring yeah. because because this guy was 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 real, uh, you know, a, a major talent. Uh, and and Jeff Adder, I think he actually may have literally have been the author, wrote the book Modern Recording Techniques. I think there's a Modern Recording Techniques Volume One, Volume Two, Volume Three. Uh, it's it's a it, it's a it, it's a very um, famous uh, handbook for, you know, the fundamentals. And I guess through the different volumes, I guess it probably went on to more advanced techniques. I never went beyond volume one because volume one was what was used as a textbook at that course. Okay. So that's really, that's really the beginning, but this was really all just for, 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 for kicks because, you know, I was in high school and, you know, it's it, very possibly nothing was ever going to come of this except for the opportunity to practice what I learned with my my buddy Ed and his friends. Um, that that led to some. Oh, my God, that uh, that that ultimately led to my first trip in an ambulance. OK, tell me about that. Uh, well, you know, um, so 
as time went on and and his bands progressed and his circle of friends became more proficient and of course to get into this school you had to be really proficient in your instrument music and art high school was you know was was you know it had a pretty high standard like Juilliard School of Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed eventually uh, went, gradu- when he graduated there he went to Berkeley School of Music and and uh, got his masters and and uh, and wrote a couple of books and you know and so he, his his friends were all really good musicians. So somewhere along the line they managed to get a gig for the city of New York, going around and uh, playing block parties. Um, they gave us the truck, they gave us the permit, the barricades, we'd close down the streets, and, and we would be the city, the, 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 the entertainment provided by the city, okay. uh, you know, back then when cities had money uh-huh. for stuff like this. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we spent our summer going, you know, in our big panel truck, hmm. uh, from neighborhood to neighborhood, and we'd set up, and the roadblocks would go up, and we had all the permits. The cops were generally on hand to, you know, uh, assist. And uh, there were uh, stages in some cases. Other times, we'd we'd uh, set up right on the street. Um, and uh, but we did one show in Ridgewood, Queens, which kind of bordered on Brooklyn, and. Uh, and and it was it was a very gray day, drizzle on and off. We had no stage. We tapped our power, and I don't know who provided. I think maybe the, I have to imagine that the city was the one that actually did the hookup. Yeah. They would hook up into a street lamp. You know, they oh pull yeah, the, oh they yeah. pull the cover off the street lamp <laughs> and and do some MacGyver hookup and then run a distro and then and then everything would connect to that and. Uh, and on this particular day, uh, Ed, who was uh, actually a guitar player at the time, uh, was uh, was setting up and tuning his instruments and 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 checking his uh, his pedals, and uh, and he one of his pedals uh, I think it was a little MXR or MRX MXR uh, phase pedals or distortion uh, pedals. Yeah, you remember the little little square stomp? Yeah, pedals? yeah, yeah. I remember those. Well, you know. He, he had dropped to one knee and he was tuning up his guitar and his pedals were laid out in front of him and he was checking the sound and he was mm. activating them with his hand oh. while holding the guitar, oh. you know, had his left hands yeah. on the neck of the guitar and his right hands punching pedals. And he got to this one pedal that was on a manhole cover. Oh, and grounded man. Let me <laughs> tell you, uh, I think, I think he, I think he he grounded his his whole rig through the New York sewer system powered by a street <laughs> lamp, and I remember him getting blown back. He got laid him out. His his watch on his on his right hand was destroyed from wow. the current, and and it was a real eye opener. So towards the end of the but you know. We're all young and stupid, so you know the show goes on. And uh, but at the by the end of the show, it started drizzling a little bit, uh-huh. and uh, and the crowd was very appreciative, great crowd. But there were a couple of just there was a certain element in the crowd that had been drinking a little too much mm. and wasn't really ready to go home yet. 
and they were shouting for an encore and kind of insisting on an encore. And back then, the encore was like whipping post. So, you know, you got a bunch mm. of drunk guys in the house saying, whipping post. Mm. And before you know it, these guys, because we're busy packing up because we already got electrocuted once. Yeah. We don't have any cover. Our stuff's out. Mm. And we're going to get this bagged, you know, yeah. as fast as yeah. possible. So next thing you know, I turn around and and my drummer, Don, is is having a beef with some guy from the audience that decided to come up, take his drumsticks and start beating on the drums, shouting whipping post hmm. and Don's vintage sonar kit was getting wet and, and things were getting hot. And I thought that I would step in and help kind of mediate and, you know, as hmm. the voice of reason, to explain that, hey, you know, when you know nobody has to, you know, we don't want to get in any beef here, but you know, my guy got electrocuted and we really got to wrap it up. So, I came up behind the guy on the drums and I think I I put my my hand on his shoulder um, to get his attention so I could you know kind of make my case. And the minute I touch this guy, suddenly I'm there's like voices behind me saying he hit Brock, oh, he hit Brock. And I'm like, what's a Brock? I never even heard that name before. Uh, it turns out the guy behind the drums was Brock, uh -huh. and and he was like the leader. Okay. And and these guys were a gang, and so oh. and so the next thing I know, somebody's got their hand on my shoulder. They spin me around, and and I get one straight to the face, and I I, I go into stun mode. And uh, and then, you know, one thing leads to another. And I'm the guy that laid hands on on the chief. Mm. And so next thing I know, there's melee going on. And I got five guys on me and I'm on the ground and they're just they're putting a stomp into me. Really like serious mm. stomping. And um, and that eventually led to. Uh, my first ride in an ambulance. So, you know, it, it's like adventures <laughs> in adventures in rock and roll, you know. Um by the way, we just got a call from the guy who mixed the show in seventy four. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he wants to talk to the guy who thinks he can do better than him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy, you know, uh, you know, I, g given the industry back then, I'd be really impressed if he was still around. That Probably. would be that would be really encouraging. The industry's <laughs> changed a lot since, you know, just the the whole uh if he's still around he probably doesn't remember anything yeah <laughs> I, I i would i would be willing to bet well we'll find out if i get an email after broadcasting this yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but you know hey disclaimer i was in the worst seat in the house all the way at the back there was no salvaging that seat mm. i mean for all i know on on the on the ice it may have it may have sounded like a million bucks yeah but I, I doubt it, given the fact that in that era, the band was, you know, all the bands in that era, you know, the top bands, they were all pretty twisted most of the time. Oh, yeah. You know, I never saw the movie. I never even saw the movie. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. I, I should, I should, I you know, I'll, I'll get around. I, I, I got to make a point of watching that just to, just to reminisce. That'd be cool. Yeah. I think I'll do that too. <laughs> uh, so, so all of this was pretty much as a hobbyist. I mean, this is all for the glory. Back then, you know, there was no money. You know, as I, yeah. I you was, were still I was, in New York, New York, right? So, yeah, yeah, when yeah. did that move happen from New York to Montreal? Well, um, 
after high school, actually, you know, by, by the time I, I graduated high school, I, I had a pretty fair amount of experience and, uh, and I, uh, I took a job, uh, I shared a cab, buddy of mine, the drummer, in fact, the guy whose ass I saved, uh, leased a medallion, a, a, a medallion from a, from a, a fleet owner. And so that meant, you know, it, back then you could, uh, you know, you could drive for a fleet or you could lease a medallion and pay for the medallion by the month. And, you know, you make your payment and, and whatever you, whatever you clear after that is yours. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yellow cabs in Manhattan generally work six days a week, you know, uh, 24 six the seventh day oil change every single week oh, the thing yeah. goes into there yeah. because stop and go Manhattan traffic and so um, he took me on as a partner and uh, and so I drove it 12 hours from six to six hmm. and he did mornings from six to six and we kept this thing on the road um, all you know every day and and that's and that's how I uh, and that's how I made money and and it gave me the freedom to uh, not work and same for him you know we we could we could uh, skip whenever we wanted if we had a gig or something okay yeah and uh, so one day in uh, I think it was 1978 I was uh, driving my cab and I had just started my shift and I was at the base of the Empire State Building on on 33rd. And I get flagged and two guys get in the cab. And and this is a Friday rush hour, Mm. evening rush hour. Like, you know, so it's like first fair in Manhattan. They get in the car and they uh, they tell me they're going to Sheep's Head Bay, Brooklyn, which is, you know, I don't know if you know your geography, but... A Friday at rush hour from Midtown Manhattan to Sheep's Head Bay. That's a really big fat fare, and it's gonna take a minute. Uh, It'll be a yeah. while before we get out to Sheep's Head Bay. Yeah, and we didn't have a partition in our cab. We were like, a, you know, we we were the brave drivers with oh, no yeah. okay. with no partition. Yeah, uh, which made it very easy to uh, to both play music because I had this big boom box wow. and I'd size up my customers in the back, and depending on you know, the vibe that I got, I would then go through the cassettes and find <laughs> just the right mood music for the ride, roll up the windows, put on the air conditioner. But these guys were, they got in the car and they were like deep into a debate, conversation, argument. Wasn't really sure when they got in. But mm. as I as I made my way to Brooklyn, uh, I could hear them going back and forth and kind of pointing the finger at each other. It's like, well, you know, y- you were supposed to do it. Well, well, no, I can't do it because, you know, I got this other thing. And, and you know, Bob said he was going to do it. But then, you know, he bailed. And the other guy is like, well, opening is next week. And and we don't have anybody. And, and oh. you know, we're like, you know, serious shit. And, and they, they were really tense. So then they started going over the laundry list of all the things that they got to check off. And, and as I listened to them, kind of minding my own business, but with an ear on the conversation <laughs> yeah. and an eye on the road, it, it, it wasn't hard to, to pick up what they were talking about. They were talking about audio. They were talking about sound system. And they were talking about a club install. And I... The where I picked them up from was right at the entrance of a club that was opening next week called Leviticus International on 33rd Street, which was which went on to become like this major uh, showcase cabaret uh, club 
it was a, a, a black owned club and, and mostly, uh, a, you know, a upscale, uh-huh. uh, uh, clientele and, and upscale talent. I mean, really upscale talent. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But, um, they were, they were discussing the install at Leviticus and that, and that they didn't have an operator and that the system wasn't finished yet oh. and that they're way behind. And I could tell they're really, really tense. And, uh, and at one point, one says to the other, um, did the crest come in yet? And of course, you know, because for the last five years I've been, you know, involved in audio strictly for the glory and the free beer but you know <laughs> but enough to know what a crest was and that was an amplifier yeah and uh and and that was and that was my moment you know uh-huh. i said did the crest come in and uh i i don't remember what his response was but i i i found an opening and i kind of leaned over and i said uh the 400 or the 800 Oh, and there and, you go. <laughs> and they and they and the, and they kind of stopped, and there was a pause of silence. <laughs> and the guy in the back kind of leans forward. And he says, "The 800." <laughs> and, I, and and so I'm still kind of driving, and eyes on the road, and I'm nodding, uh huh, you know, with approval, like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, I really like those on the bass. You know, I prefer the 800 to the 400, but on the bass, silence." <laughs> <laughs> and now they kind of now I got both their attention they kind of perk up their ears and they kind of s- sit forward a little bit and the rest of the ride the sheep's head bay was really like an interview wow it was you know they were kind of picking my brain to see what what do you think about this what do you think about uh-huh. what do you like on the high end you know and at the time I was living with a band in a loft on 31st which is um the uh the the um or 32nd the the music building what was known as the music building steve gad had a loft there blondie had a loft there wow. the uh, uh uh there was a bunch of studios there uh a studio uh a, a rehearsal space you know sir mm-hmm. a studio instrument rental they're big all over the world yeah. well in new york there was sir and the runner-up to SIR and considered the best rehearsal facility uh, room in, in the city was was a was a, uh, a studio called uh, MR Martin Research. It was run by a gentleman named Bill Martin. He was a he was a a military. Uh, he was a, a an officer, a pilot. He used to do a fly night bombers wow. off of aircraft carriers <laughs> in Vietnam. He did everything the Navy way. I learned that expression the Navy the way. The Navy way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so uh, I was living in the building, the same building with MR and uh, Daily Planet Studio was in the basement. Uh, hmm. w- uh, the, the band that I was living with we had a loft and the whole band the lighting director um, the entourage it was like a hippie commune and we had this industrial space in that space we had a, a sound stage and the band would rehearse we had, they had their own sound stage here hmm. with a you know a full PA uh, permanent setup and that's where they would rehearse their show their ld had the lights set up and and we would do full production rehearsals and these guys were gigging in the city it was a prog rock band very genesis influence so i had spent a lot of time you know that was like my laboratory 
And so I learned so much there that when it came time to the interview with these guys in my cab, you know, the last year of living with the Mm -hmm. the band was called Amber Waves, uh, of, you know, working with these guys, gigging and rehearsing and polishing and, and refining everything that I knew that was my test lab. (laughs) So, uh, by the time we got to Sheep's Head Bay, Brooklyn, I, I pretty much, I had landed the interview. You know, wow. I nailed the interview and, and they invited me to the, to, the, to, the, to the club the next day to eyeball it and to see what I would do with it. And, um, and that was the last month I drove a cab. Wow. That was it. Okay. That was it. And, it's and a that, life changer. That was, that was a life-changing ride. Wow. That, that led, that one gig... They were called the Equipment Sound Services. That one gig led to the working for them at Leviticus and then getting hired away from them by Leviticus. Uh, And Leviticus used to rent additional supplemental gear to cover the riders of the bands that were Mm -hmm. performing there from MR Studio. And so, and through through my and I took care of the production for the club and so I got to meet Bill Martin oh. and MR and and given the fact that that MR was on the 11th floor and I was living on the 5th floor <laughs> well then they offered me a job and so I started working at MR at MR studio and through them and the connection from them to Daily Planet which was a studio in the basement that was my first recording studio gig and so all of these things tied together and stem from this one cab ride <laughs> where where you know you, you never know who's in your cab and and it it helps to be chatty you know <laughs> damn right yeah I, I i think yeah the whole connection uh from 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 the band in their rehearsal slash living loft um to uh the cab and Leviticus and then to MR and daily planet and, and, but Leviticus was really, that was my, that was my showcase room. That, that, that's the, that was the space that gave me profile Mm -hmm. because it was, it was an in-house position. Uh, you had major acts coming in all the time. Stevie wonder came in there unannounced Unannounced <laughs> to everyone, including me, but management knew, and they didn't want any leaks. Uh, and I yeah. remember the um, the that uh, my instructions, you know, the, for the the keyboard and the monitor, um, and the microphone. Very simple, just you know, keyboard, no band, and but no idea. Yeah, we're gonna have someone come up, you know, come up and 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 play, and it ended up being Stevie Wonder. Um, the uh you know the the band that brought me to canada the my my entry point and what brought me here was uh, a band that i i don't know if you, maybe you yeah you're old enough uh it was a band called kinky fox kinky fox kinky no, fox no i've never heard of them the, is that no. right yeah. okay all right well in the early 80s uh, there was a club on park avenue called checkers Okay. Yeah. I remember heard checkers? That. I heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I've never been, but I heard. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it was a, you know, it, it's kind of a legendary spot now, uh, owned by a guy named Peter Lombario. Is it still around? No, or, no, no. no okay. There was a fire I, uh, below checkers. It was a restaurant. Um, uh, Dusty's was the restaurant just below, just underneath checkers. And, 
uh, Peter owned checkers and, and he, he went on to buy dusties and, but there was a period there in the eighties where checkers was the spot that was in the early eighties, Montreal. Great thing about Montreal in the early eighties was that the, the live music scene was really, it mm-hmm. was really happening. There were lots of venues and there was a big circuit and the booking agents could take a band and, and create a, an itinerary for a good band that would literally go for months. And uh, when I was working at Leviticus, uh, I remember when the Tramps uh, performed there. Oh, yeah. And back in, you know, the Disco Inferno days, that was their mm-hmm. big hit. And that's, yeah. that's the one that was, you know... Uh, that 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 was that was their biggest hit. I, I can't tell you anything else uh, the <laughs> Tramps did, but uh, but Disco Inferno was was the big one, and uh, and they there was a support act on the bill that was going to be opening up for them, a, a local act, you know, bunch of guys from Harlem, you know, uh, uh, big seven piece band. Wow. Uh, okay. But but I I never heard of them. A band called Kinky Fox, and uh, at the time. Uh, Johnny Kemp was their was their lead singer. Johnny Kemp, I don't know if you remember that song. Just got paid, right? Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Johnny Kemp. Okay. Uh, so he was the lead singer, and uh, Timmy Allen was on bass, and Timmy Allen mm-hmm. went on to produce a bunch of hits for, and and to play. Uh, he was like a very in demand uh, session and touring bass player uh, that was responsible in in part for a lot of the gigs that I went on to do later on because I, I established a really great relationship with him while he was in Kinky Fox but uh we used to play at uh we were kind of like the the house band at this club uh on the Upper West Side called The Cellar okay on uh, 95th and 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 uh I think it was 95th in in Columbus um and we played there a lot like you know at least at least two weekends a month, you know, and we'd okay. alternate with another band, you know, there'd be like Kinky Fox for two weeks and then another band would come and then Kinky Fox and then another band. But Kinky Fox was on heavy rotation there. And one day an agent came in from, uh, I don't know if this agent was, was a, a Quebecer or whether it was an agent from New York that was working with another agent in, in, mm-hmm. in, in Montreal, but they offered us an opportunity to go to Montreal for a three-week engagement at a at a club called Checkers. Okay, uh, we'd never been mm-hmm. to Montreal, and of course, you know, playing the cellar, you know, every other week, you know, as much fun as that was, because that was another very uh, high-profile clientele, very you know, like money, a lot of celebrities mm-hmm. would uh, in and out of there all the time, like Leviticus. Okay, you know, it's like a just smaller. And so uh, we took the opportunity and uh, and we came up here for what was supposed to be three weeks. I think in 81 was the first time. Or that was our first trip here. And it turned into like, you know, Gilligan's Island cruise, you know, the three hour cruise. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. That, you know, we we you got marooned. We we set up <laughs> we set up shop. And uh, and after the first and, you know, back then bands would play six days a week. You know, like wow. if you were in a, you know, and there weren't a lot of bands that could still generate excitement and interest after playing every night for yeah. a week. Yeah. You know, usually it's like, you know, one week next and then you go to another mm-hmm. club and you play for a week. But this was a three week engagement. And at the time, this club was 
doing that format for I, I think a number of years, and they were doing uh, mostly dance bands and alternative uh, rock, uh, kind of you know new wave, uh, mm-hmm. you know not 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 funk R and B soul, and Kinky Fox was a serious R and B funk band, but. Would set my them, kind of band. Oh man, that's <laughs> my first love. Listen, this is you know that that was the format at Leviticus. That's most of what I did at Leviticus. But um, when when Kinky Fox showed up to open for the Tramps, uh, I'd never heard of them. They certainly didn't know me. They were terrified of going up in flames because this I think was probably their most high profile date in the city so far. Yeah, and you opening, don't know who the sound guy you is. You don't know who wow. the sound guy yeah and and, Lots and so of stress. And, exactly, you know, and so you know, I was viewed with a degree of suspicion that man, you, you you sure you know how to do this? You sure you're up to this? And uh and I was game and uh, they went on to tear the place down i felt so bad for the tramps and i wasn't mixing the tramps because the tramps were you know they were a high profile act they had their own they had their own foh guy you know they were an international act and so i was just there to you know as the a1 to look after the system to make sure that Mm -hmm. that the the headliners foh guy had a good night and that everything worked right and mixed the support act because you know the headliners engineer isn't going to mix the support act that just doesn't happen and so but that was my room, though. Mm-hmm. See, you know, I had the home field advantage because I had been in that room now for about a year. Yeah. So, so you, you knew that was that was that yeah. was I absolutely knew every day. I, I tuned the system. I installed the system. I operated the system. And and it turns out that Fox was just the best band I had ever mixed. Wow. These guys were so incredible. By the end of their set, Johnny Kemp was leading the audience around the room in one of those conga lines, <laughs> you know, and the band was originally from the Bahamas, like the 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 founders of the band. Johnny was was from the Bahamas, so was a percussionist and the original drummer, and they came up from the Bahamas. So they they really had that island vibe. And and he was the audience that was all like upscale and ties <laughs> they were in a conga line behind johnny and the house was they were literally burning down the house and then the tramps came on oh and it was crickets and oh god it was i it was they just could they couldn't follow this band they couldn't follow this band it was as good as they were fox kiki fox stole the show and so the, this, based on the success of that show, of course the band hired me immediately, and like you're our sound guy. And and, <laughs> and, and I've seen that many times on tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah like, don't we don't have a sound guy? Can you do it? Yeah, sure. And after the first night, it's like, okay, you're you're staying with us. I've right? seen that many times. Yeah. Well, you know, I have uh, some good friends actually that I met that way. <laughs> you know, traditionally most FOH sound guys, you know, you you come up through a different path. You usually, mm-hmm. you know land a job as a cable jockey you know running cables and and you work your way up and it's and and it's it's usually takes a good long while before anybody's going to put you behind a desk if ever yeah you know you may never get behind the desk but uh 
what you do learn is every single aspect of the sound company job. Mm. So you can go out and work for any sound company and you've, you know, rigged speakers and run cables and done everything. Unfortunately, I never benefited from that. So there's a lot of that, like, routine sound company stuff that I I never really became proficient in because I never had that position. Yeah. I, I kind of leapfrogged all of that by, you know, being a, a club, you know, in-house club guy at a good club, mixing really good bands and then getting getting drafted by the band. Mm. And so it, I, I'm very, very fortunate. And it, I, I've, this is probably the best luck I had, you know, that, that, that one cab fare yeah. <laughs> and the fact that, I, that, that that landed me in the right club to make all these other connections. So that's how I started working with Kinky Fox. And so one day this agent discovers the band playing at the cellar and offers us a gig in Montreal. And we, the other unique thing, about Kinky Fox is that we didn't know what the established norms and standards were here in Montreal. Uh-huh. You know, in New York, you know, you had to roll big. You know, it's if you didn't have like a big sound system, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. you just weren't. And by big, you know, like the criteria is, well, hmm, uh, if I set this birthday cake one meter in front of the bass bin and hit the kick drum, like, can I blow out the candles? You know, <laughs> if you can blow out the candles, you got enough bass. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, we came up here with everything we had because they own their, their own system. And it was, it was a three-way system, but this was like the first big gig. And we were kind of tense about, oh, maybe we don't have enough. Not knowing that the standard at the time here where bands were rolling in with really tiny little rudimentary systems mm-hmm. that were mostly, you know, capable of providing like intelligible vocal at best with maybe a little of this and that mm-hmm. thrown in and the rest was a roar of stage you noise. Know, that makes me laugh. A band coming out of New York asking, well, are we big enough coming to Montreal? I mean, normally it's the opposite. It's people from Montreal going to New York that shit their pants. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, this was, well, yeah, and rightly so because yeah. in New York, yeah, you know, you you can't half step, you know, you, you better, well, you yeah. better, you know, you better have your shit together and you get one <laughs> shot, you know. If you don't, if you don't wow them coming out of the gate, you're probably not going to win them over during the night. Of course. And so um, first order of business, you know, we get to the club and um, and we determine that, you know what, we need a little more. And so uh, I don't remember how we how we met this person, but there was somebody, I think it was affiliated with the club that put us on to this this guy on St. Antoine that had a little shop just like a block away from Steve's music. And it was nothing more than a storefront with a big glass window, completely bare on the inside, except for a desk all the way at the far wall. <laughs> this one guy, I think he had a helper, but uh, I don't remember who the helper was at that time. And, and it was just him and this desk and a bunch of like Martin gear and and an assortment of speakers and amplifiers. Was that Jack's music. It story? was a hodgepodge. No, it was a guy named Steve Coster. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and 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 he's he's one of the first people that 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 we met as a band and that I met personally in Montreal because because um, he had what we needed and and at a price that we could afford. And frankly, we were more interested in making a good impression than making money because 
because it's like Montreal, man. It's like international, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so, uh, I have to mention, I have to mention Steve Coster is my boss. Okay. He owns AVL media group at uh, the office we're sitting in right now. It's just so people, you know, so people know who we're talking about here from very humble beginnings. Yes. <laughs> very so I see. humble <laughs> beginnings. That was, you, you didn't know him back then. No, I didn't. You know, no. and who knew, who knew that he was going to grow into this giant, you know, which, which he has. And, 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 and I owe him a lot and we'll get to that. Wow, what a canoe trip I'm taking on, man. This is like, <laughs> wow, this, I haven't strolled down memory lane like this in, in maybe forever. Um, but you can edit out all this stuff, you know, you cut well, the fat. Well, I always say I'm going to edit and I never do. Uh, um, the only thing I'm, that really bothers me about this recording is my crappy mic, but that's okay. No, well, you know, it sounds it. good in my cans anyway. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, no, it sounds good. It sounds good. Um, so, uh, so, there we are at Steve at uh, at CoStar, and uh, we get all this this extra gear and and bring it to the club, and we set up and I tune it up and you know and agonize over the tuning and and our system back then was very rudimentary, but I swear to God we could blow out a birthday cake at one meter, <laughs> we really could we really could, and when we opened that week, the response from from the from the from the club owner from the audience from the booking agent mm. down the line they were just floored by this band from New York um we did get some blowback though and it was from all the other bands on the circuit and and they were they were there nightly, religiously. Everybody by the third week, a good portion of the audience were all the other bands on the circuit coming down to see what all the hubbub was about, and they loved the show. They were blown away and they were pissed as shit at us because we had now forever fouled the circuit with the the production standard because these guys weren't rolling with that. You know, they were they were doing it with much, much less and and the booking agent in response to the to the to the success of this first engagement immediately followed up with, Well, hey, how about after this? You know, I have another gig for you here, here and they put together an itinerary. And the itinerary went for almost a year. So our little three three hour cruise, you know, turned into like a year. And, uh, and of course, because we we're on work permits, we had to exit every, every couple of weeks. We literally had to go down to the border, exit the border, make a U-turn, come back, get stamped with extensions because. Oh, that quick. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You just had to, you just had to physically, you know, you had to put both feet in the U S <laughs> and then, and then turn around and then the Canadian side would stamp you as entering on this date because I think the permits were good for like a month. Okay. But, uh, that. The, the the band the band hit like gangbusters i mean it was uh and and that is that's how i that's how i i got here and so of course you know one year turned into you know i went back and forth i was still touring with uh you know w- with the connections that i made while i was at leviticus um doing you know international acts doing uh i, I did a world tour uh, i think the first was in uh, 83 and then again in 85 and and you know with with uh with with bigger acts but it was it all stemmed 
everything, you know, you talk about it like a couple of degrees of separation. Everything was, you know, no more than, you know, three or five degrees of separation from that cab ride. They're yeah. all, they're all directly linked. Uh, but it was my exposure with Kinky Fox here, I think, that uh, because we're all an unknown quantity here, everybody, me, the band, you know, nobody knew us from anyone else. But we, we established a tremendous reputation, and that went a long way to increasing my profile here. And everything that, that's ever happened for me here is a, in direct link to Kinky Fox. Hmm. It's all. It all started from Kinky Fox. And what Fox. happened with that band? I mean, uh, well, you know, Timmy, uh, Johnny Kemp, the singer, went back to because you know a, a couple of them had um, a little higher aspirations. You know, their ambition was to, you know, hit on a different level, and and but for a lot of the guys, it was just about making the rent. You know, mm -hmm. and there was so much work. I mean, there was they they went to the top of the scale really fast, and the demand for the band was really, really hot. And so uh, our our circuit went from Toronto to Halifax. So we worked steady, and, and I was with them. Uh, I, I, I ultimately, I, I left the band in, I think it was 1986, because to pursue other things, you know, uh, I, I couldn't do, you know, you can only do be at one place at the same, at one time. Yeah. What I find strange though, is that they, they come up to Montreal, they're liked, they're booked. I understand that. But having that, um, notoriety, notoriety, uh, uh, notoriety, notoriety. Anyway, having, that, oh, there yeah. was, but there was a certain well, amount of, there was some notorious stuff too. Uh, yeah. There are. Yeah. But what I'm, what I'm wondering is that, okay, so they were doing this in, in Canada, yeah. but I mean, couldn't they go back to the States and, and get, the and get circuit bigger? here, the circuit here in the early eighties was so good. There was just, there wasn't that much work in New York, really? you know, and, and, uh, and elsewhere in the States. No, uh, not without a record. Oh, and these guys okay. were a cover band, but what really set oh. them apart, and the reason, I, I, what I attribute to, uh, the, I, I attribute their success in large part to the fact that they weren't going off a top 40 radio playlist. These guys were, you know, they're a New York funk band, and so their repertoire was incredibly diverse and was not linked to the top 40. We were doing stuff like Billy Cobham, Glass Menagerie, you know, Funk Fusion, like really heavy. Which gives you a certain performance um, freedom. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and B-sides of records that nobody heard. Mm. They were doing, they were playing tunes that people assumed was original material. Uh -huh. We never claimed that it was original in New York, you know, because, uh, you know, New York radio was playing this stuff. But uh, at the time... And and now, you know, up up till now, there, there is no R and B black radio in Montreal. No, that's there there true. is no yeah. it, it's Montreal radio. There's there's nothing. Uh, there's no station that's that's that hip here, at least on the R and B side, where R and B is big all over the world. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I came here, I think most people didn't know who Luther Vandross was. <laughs> you know, really, and and you know, Luther Vandross, you know, he's a, he was a giant. Uh, but they just, if it's not on the radio, you know, yeah. you, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna know it. So a lot of the music they were playing were like these really great 
great tracks off of records that nobody heard and combined and performed in a way mixed with familiar songs that people knew that just that was what that was their that was their formula that was the secret to their success and i i still um believe to this day that it's not so much what you play as much as how you play it Mm-hmm. You know, oh, if you it just good music is good music and then you perform it really well. There's a there's a universal appeal, whether you yeah. recognize it or not. Comedy's like that, too. I, I once uh, I, I did a lot of touring with uh, with newbies, uh, comedians. Yeah. And stand up comics. And one time there was this uh, this girl that was doing this act, and the the act was just not working. You know, people were not reacting, and everybody thought that the number was was bad. And uh, one time she left her text at uh, FOH, and I started reading it just for fun. You know, and I knew the number, I knew the act, but I started reading the text without the performance. Yeah, and I I cracked up, and I said, "Man, I give this to the proper comedian." The text is good. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I told oh, the girl, no, maybe you should be writing, timing. you know? Yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. You, you know, but the, performances, yeah, it's, it, it makes a hell of a difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it was great that, that in spite of the fact that this was a seven-piece band, using wedges on stage and playing clubs and with backline amplifiers, they were always really super sound conscious. They were really, they cared how they sounded. Mm-hmm. They wanted to sound... They, they, you know, they were into taking no prisoners, you know, and, and they were super cooperative and whatever I needed, you know, it was always rich. What do you need? You know, what do you need? Am I, am I too loud? You want me to turn my amp sideways? You know, is this, this is working for you. And it was, that, that was such a great experience. Uh, you know, I was with them for you know, about six years. Uh, wow. No, 79 to yeah. 79 to 85, 86. Yeah. You know, it's a, that's a long time. So you know, I was living and working and traveling with these guys, except for the periods where I was touring with other acts. I had to go on, you know, hiatus, which I think kind of undermined the relationship a little bit and maybe ultimately contributed to, you know, uh, my departure because, of course, you know, they would have liked me to give priority and, you know, to stay with them. And, uh, yeah. but, like the guys that left the band to pursue other things mm-hmm. and and to become much more successful because they took the chance. Yeah. You know, I I I had to do the same. Yeah. And and how did your uh your permanent stay in Canada happen? I mean, you were going in and out of the states at the time, right? Yeah. Well, you know what? So. By by the time 1987 rolled around, um I had I had met my my future wife and uh and 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 let me tell you, when you have an apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, it's it's hard to give up. You mm-hmm. know, I always kept one foot in New York, even though I was madly in love with and in Montreal, and I love the city. and And Montreal has always reminded me, you know, when I think of Montreal, Montreal to me, the way that I describe Montreal to people that have never been here, but that have been to Europe, uh, I describe it as. Uh, the closest sister city to Montreal is Munich. You ever been to Munich? Well, yeah. Yeah. Munich, Munich is as distinct. 
you know, being Bavarians, you know, they're they're the the the, mm. the, the, the citizens, you know, of Munich. They're they're Bavaria. That's Bavaria. It's in Bavaria. They're Bavarians, and there's a distinct difference between Bavarians and Germans, mm-hmm. and they're a lot closer to Italians, uh, both geographically and and in terms of spirit, you know. They drink harder, they laugh louder, you know, <laughs> they're rowdier, they're more festive. It's, they're, they're a very festive bunch, uh, and, and the city, but it's, of course, very European, because, you know, it's in Europe, and they have yeah. that, that sensibility. Yeah. And when I came here, it, I noticed it immediately, you know, what the, from my well, interactions yeah. with, yeah, with the your, people uh, here yeah from from a new york point of view from a new, because it, i was born here so i'm kind of used you to don't this appre- but you're it's, telling it's me this normal. and and i yeah yeah you're describing montreal very well oh absolutely because, no this is a distinct but for society. me it's normal you know <laughs> oh i know absolutely absolutely and that's great and 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 but you know the point is that the there's you know canada right and then quebec and 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 all yeah. and all Quebecers are Canadians, but but they but the Bavarians they're all German too. Yeah. But they're Bavarian, and there's a distinct <laughs> difference between a, a a a Bavarian and someone from like Frankfurt. Oh yeah. You know. Well, it, it, the it, more it, I travel through Canada, the more I notice that. Oh yeah, There yeah, is yeah. a difference. No, more festive. Not that era. it's any better. It's just different. Well, you know, you know it's they're they're, uh, yeah, they're more liberal. You know, Quebecers are more liberal, more festive, generally, mm-hmm. uh, a, a little bit less preoccupied and hung up and sweating the small stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't sweat the small stuff like, um, like your neighbors to the south uh, and, and and to the west. <laughs> uh, you know, but it, it, the contrast. You know, gigging in, uh, you know, I love you, Ontario. Um, but, but it's, please don't fire me, <laughs> but, but it, it is, it, it's a different, it's, it's a different pace. It's a different rhythm. It's a very, very different rhythm. I, I love it here. So, you know, and, and you can't overlook the similarities between Montreal and New York, even geographically. Okay. Starting at lower Manhattan at, at the pier. Okay. Yeah. You know, you got the financial district mm-hmm. and then you got uh, little, uh, you have Chinatown, you know, and here in Montreal, you got the old port and then the financial district yeah. and then Chinatown. And, <laughs> and, and if you take a minute to think about it, there are so many parallels like that where this city is divided up into districts, yeah. you know, in the same way that Manhattan's divided up into districts. And so that similarity, but with the European, sensibility mindset liberal attitude it's just how can you not fall in love with the city you know <laughs> really so so you know uh, by the time i uh, by the time you know 1987 uh, rolled around you know i was uh, it, it was something had to give you know i was either going to go back you know go back to new york but no but no i was i, I was i was in love and living here and and uh and so i i sold my 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 uh, the rights the insider rights to my apartment on the mm. upper west side which you know back then you could get paid a whole whack of money just to move you oh, know okay. just like okay. you know you want to vacate you know uh-huh. here's 20 grand you wow. know just to move so that was like seed money and so i i i put that towards a sound system and um and then i brought that money to a guy named Steve Costar 
<laughs> Again, Steve. You know what, Steve? I'm realizing now that Steve played a big part in my yeah. in in my life up here. There's there's more, but I bought my first sound system from him, and and uh, so if you gave him all your money, I guess that's how he became big, right? Yeah, that's it. He owes it all. <laughs> yeah, it was those it was those big sales to me, and he set me up with my first sound system, and. Uh, and I was able to put that to work, you know, like as the sound system, as the touring system for these club bands. And, and then ultimately, that system became the in-house system at Checkers. Rather than having, because after Kinky Fox set a standard in that club, the owner, uh, he, he realized the, the, the wisdom of maintaining the standard and kind of... Uh, leveling the playing field for everybody mm -hmm. and so after i uh i i left kinky fox i i lived literally like a block away from checkers uh when i wasn't touring on my time off you know i needed a job mm. and so i offered peter uh my my sound system and my services to act as house engineer for all the bands coming in so that and I put together a really good system. It was an old turbo sound kit with supplemental subs, also capable of moving a lot of air and a better console and, you know, a, a better a better system than what what although not as powerful as that original Kinky Fox system, but <laughs> definitely more than enough for the club. And I became the house engineer there for a couple of years and my system was working year round. And so that that kit that I got from Steve, yeah, I put that to work and uh and and that I had that kit all the way until I went I I I went from I went through three different clubs uh since Checkers. And in the last club uh this was this was in the uh in the early 90s and i'm not going to mention any names here because uh mm -hmm. it's kind of a shady story but uh this was during the biker wars remember in the 90s when when yeah. clubs and bars were getting blown up left uh -huh. and right and you yeah. know firebombed because of the rivalry and stuff well my sound system was in one of those clubs mm. and prior to anything happening to the club uh i approached the owners and they said, well, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll put my system, I'll run your, you know, I'll run your production in your club and provide the sound system conditional upon you taking a rider on your insurance policy mm -hmm. payable to me. I will pay the premium. And, uh, so it's not going to cost you a dime, but as a rider to your existing contract, it'll be a lot cheaper for me and it'll be more yeah. affordable to you yeah. because it, you know, I had, that would be reflected in my rate. And, uh, and so they agreed and um and sure enough you know Bang. fate you know fate mm. hit and and i ended up losing my entire production wow but i was insured and this was all analog gear it was all old you know analog mm -hmm. stuff and so um the insurance company god bless them and this is why i love insurance companies so much <laughs> yeah they'll pay out after you've replaced all your gear yeah. and produce all the receipts for what you've replaced up to the replacement value of your policy. You know, it's like they won't give you the money no, no, to go course. out and replace your gear. Yeah. You got to replace your gear and then they'll reimburse you. And I had to jump through so many hoops to fulfill all the requirements for the insurance company to pay out. 
and and I couldn't mm-hmm. without help. So I went to my friend Steve, uh-huh. and I t- explained the situation, and and he actually took the time to uh, go with me to a notary and sign an affidavit, and that that you know that. Uh, that he attested to everything that was lost because I got it from him because uh-huh. I didn't maintain the paperwork and he made it possible for me to for me to get paid. Wow. So yeah, it's uh, but it's, it's Steve factors into this a lot. Mm. <laughs> it's it's yeah. amazing, huh? It's uh that's your boss. So um with his help I I I replaced my lost gear, but I didn't I never got back into the big pieces, speakers and amplifiers. I focused, I took the payout and I, and I focused on just the tools of my trade mixing. Just basically yeah. I wanted to put together a, an, an FOH mix position. Yeah. And this is the basis of my service now and has been since then, since 1997. Uh, and I know, I, I know you're an early digital mixing. I, I, adopter. I, I was, I was, does the first, that happen at that time? In or? 1997. That's right. When I lost okay. all my gear, uh, I realized I saw the technology that was emerging and and I, I it was it was easy to see the advantages, even though the my first digital mixing console wasn't really designed for live sound. It was really more of like project studio stuff. Which one was that? Boy, that was a Yamaha um Oh, a Yamaha O2R. O2R. Uh, you yeah. know what? I don't know much about sound, but I do know that that board because I went to a studio back then that had two of them. Yeah, sitting one there, sitting next to the other. And uh, was it an O2R or an O2V or something like that? Um, I think it was one uh, V or you know anyway. what? It was. Yeah, I think it was an O2R. I know the one. If you're talking about the studio desk, that's a different one. Um, I, and and I have lots of actually I did a couple of records on those on those Yamaha Studio. O one V I think it was. Yeah, no, the O one V was a a kind of a, a very closely related. <laughs> you know what? There's a family of digital. Those were the early Yamaha digital. I can't boards. believe I'm talking soundboards. Yeah. Anyway. Well, <laughs> well, you know what? It's it, it was it was clear to me that that if I were to transition from analog to digital, that I would be able to do a lot more, a lot faster with a lot less gear and less truck space mm. and and by myself, which is really important, you know. And and so I transitioned into digital and um and that was that was probably in in hindsight having losing all my gear was probably one of the best things that happened because it allowed me to transition the digital and get ahead of the curve pretty much before everyone else. When I got this board, I remember the reaction was like, you can't, you can't do that with that. that that's not what that's for. <laughs> that's not, that's not a real board. And I took that board out on the road on tour with, uh, a band that was originally from Montreal, a band called C Spot Run. I don't know if you yeah, I, remember. I heard, you I know, heard to, of them. to date, yeah. man, it, it, one of, if not my favorite Canadian pop band. Mm-hmm. I love those guys. In in ninety eight or ninety nine, they they had a big hit called uh, Weightless, mm-hmm. and uh, they had uh, you know they were signed to a record deal, and and the record company was behind them, and and we. We toured all over. Uh, we went back and forth across the country umpteen times. I can't even remember how many times we drove across the country. 
Uh, and it was with that tiny little 19-inch rack mount, little postage stamp. And we went on tour playing large clubs and arenas, opening up for bands like uh, Blue Rodeo when we toured with uh, with I, Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. We did a whole tour with I, Mother Earth and, and Wide Mouth Mason. There's another name from the past. Yeah. And I, the headliner was I, Mother Earth, and they were touring at the time with this massive uh, Midas... Uh, uh, the the big four uh oh god what was it? shame on me uh, the big mothership you know the one that was at Plazdazar forever yeah, yeah yeah uh i i i can't remember the board but their footprint was this massive footprint and they had racks and racks of stuff and and at the far left end of the foh position was this little rack with a tiny little mixer sitting on top and that was for the support act yeah and for whatever reason, I suspect it was stage noise. And combined with they really didn't weren't really concerned that much with how it sounded in the house, with all the roar coming off the stage because mm. they were really loud. I'm of the earth. Um, things didn't go their way on a technical level, and and the uh, they went through a couple of FOH guys, but mostly because the guy at the other end on that little rinky dink piece of shit. Sounded like a million bucks every night. <laughs> All credit to C Spot Run. Those guys, like Kinky Fox, they were meticulous about their sound and they cared. They they it was priority one was the experience of the audience and the Sonics. Yeah. And they were so into it. And we we had such a great reputation for presentation that the manager for I Mother Earth one night came over to take a closer look at my rig because he didn't know anything about sound. And he was actually thinking maybe his band should be on this. <laughs> Never in a million years could, would that have been possible because mm. C-Spot Run was four-piece, you okay, know? Yeah. And it was a little 24-channel board. So, you know, it wasn't going to happen. But he attributed the the quality gap to the fact that, that I was on a superior setup, which, of course, I was not. Mm-hmm. But that led to him taking notes and calling Yamaha and wanting to find out, so what's up with this board and uh, can I use one of these? Is this going to work for me? And I think the person that he spoke with is the, uh, you know, I'll have to ask Ashley Clark about this, but I know that I got a call from, I I think it was uh, Ashley from Yamaha because the the manager had given him my number and he said, yeah, hi, uh, yeah, I'm from Yamaha and I, was in conversation with the manager from My Mother Earth, and apparently you're on tour and you're using one of our boards. And uh, <laughs> what are you using exactly? And I told him what I was using, and it was like, really, you're yeah. doing like arenas and you're that you're mixing front of house on that. Um, okay, we don't know how you're doing that and how that even <laughs> how that even possible, but that started a relationship. And, and and a uh, a loyalty the Yamaha they, yeah. from that day on y- Yamaha has been very very uh, supportive and and gracious and generous uh, to see that I am you know that that I have one of their desks well, yeah know, they they've been very very supportive and I'm on my fourth desk with with them oh. now and uh, and I, I'm a real you know 
I'm a real fan. Uh, I've been with them since, like, you know, with their earliest digital desks mm -hmm. that weren't even designed. I adapted them for live music, and I think they always got a kick out of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. Actually, that's pretty much a souvenir I have of you. The first times we, we were gigging together, you'd show up with this dinky board yeah. and set it in front of the big setup. That thing was 19 <laughs> inches wide. It was 19 inches Just wide. Just one little small, little small rack. And and uh, lately, I can't even find your rack. I see you walking around with an iPad. So you know, yeah. I, it. I, I tell you, you know, it's um, it's all part of the uh, the evolution. I think you know, it's mm. it's we've gone from the days of the big analog footprints that take up you know a 10 by 10 riser, um, and uh, and then gotten it down to small digital consoles that you know do everything and you don't mm. need the racks anymore and now you know and that's not enough to satisfy a lot of the promoters now and the organizers of like the kind of corporate events that i i corporate sound is i do a lot of that mm -hmm. and and more often than not they don't want anything out in front of house no of course so i've been mixing wirelessly uh wow i was a real early adopter like uh of wireless mixing my last yamaha console was never designed or intended to be used wirelessly hmm. it had a usb port intended to connect directly via copper wire yeah. to a computer and mostly for archiving presets mm -hmm. and the contents the memory of the console to transfer the memory into the computer so you could have a backup and load it into another desk but at the same time through the computer have access to all the parameters the catch was you had to connect via usb yeah but there's but a whole generation wireless usb uh, th th <laughs> there's there's a whole generation of wireless routers which are harder to find these days yeah that have uh that 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 emulate that that wire connection uh -huh. and so but the software was never intended to be used as a mix platform for wireless remote control well that was my first i was mixing i was doing shows doing the sound check on the desk but then mixing the actual event on a tablet on a pc tablet uh, with an interface that was never supposed to work, and it was a pure MacGyver setup. <laughs> and uh, but now, of course, all the consoles are designed for wireless operation. But because I've been mixing wireless for so long, it gave me a head start, and and I I'm I'm very happy that a lot of my clients rely on that. And uh, part of the reason why I work as much as I do is because uh, I'm not just willing to go without a mixer where a lot of guys break into a sweat and they, they start itching and scratching, you know, like they really break out in a rash at the thought of, what do you mean I can't mix on the desk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to, glass, I can't mix on glass. I've been mixing on glass for, you know, wow, well over a decade. Well, I remember when the, full, uh, the first iPhone came out. Yeah. I was like, no buttons? No way. This isn't going to work. No yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And, and Especially and if now, you were from a BlackBerry. Well, yeah, and... Now my my horror story, my personal horror story is tactile screens and cars. Right. I just I don't understand them. I don't understand why you have to take your eyes off the road to go and set your heater or <laughs> or and and go through the menus to bring down the intensity of the screen. Right. I'm driving. Come on. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So I and I can understand in a live situation 
mixing on 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 this glass screen i can understand the, you know how it's how that can be uh, uh that can be scary you know i don't even remember how oh no i do remember uh because now you know one of my mixers i have you know i have like on my my flagship mixer you know my big my big mm-hmm. yamaha my, my ql5 and and i have for for smaller gigs i have a a a, a turnkey front of house mix position that is totally designed that doesn't even have, there's there's a power button and one knob for the headphone jack <laughs> to like you know adjust yeah. the volume that's coming out of the headphone jack if you have one plugged in the front other than that it's basically a computer with 32 in and 16 out and and that's that's all there is yeah um and uh i the i it, it i reviewed the first generation totally wireless mixer from mackie it was a 1608 for a magazine that I was writing for, uh, I, I was doing reviews for for professional sound. Yeah, and yeah, I and saw that. I, I reviewed the sixteen oh eight, and and they they sent me one, and oh. and um, and I I took it out for a test drive and and just used the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. Really like, you know, every input and every output really like pushed the limit and got away with murder <laughs> on this tiny little thing that fit in a shoulder bag. Wow. That you could literally put underneath the airline seat, it's, you know. <laughs> and I was so blown away, and I, I I gave it a rave review. And Mackie said we were so happy you liked it, and they they let me keep it, and and then they you know they they sent me the the you know, their their flagship you know the the next one, and and they've been very very generous and kind with me, and so now I you know I have a sixteen oh eight and a thirty two, <laughs> and and I use that thirty two, and what I do with that thirty two on my website. There's a there's a clip there from MRO. I don't know if you got a chance to plug in your headphones. Um, no, I didn't. The, oh, that's a left right out of that DL32, uh-huh. and that and that that's the one with no knobs or buttons or nothing but an iPad as an interface, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's because I've been doing it the hard way on glass for over ten years. That when somebody comes out with something that's designed from the ground up for wireless operation. There you it's go. it's a joy, you know. Yeah. It's it's that much easier. So that if it wasn't for that, I I don't think I'd be I, I probably wouldn't be working as much because uh, it, and like the old days with Kinky Fox, where the other bands got really pissed off because we were rolling in so hard with all the big gear yeah. and stuff that they couldn't afford if they wanted to have any money left over at the end of the gig. There are a lot of guys that uh, that have expressed. Um, a degree of anxiety slash resentment that uh, that you know they get in the well. Well, Richie Forte does it like that, so you know you can too. Uh, mm. That would rather not mix on wireless. Uh, it's hard for me to find subs for the gigs oh, that yeah. require yeah. wireless. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so I've had to train my own guy. That it's a work in progress right now, and he's. I'm happy to say he's coming along really well, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of having fun sharing. You know, I've uh, I've I'm, I'm mentoring a a, a young uh, a young engineer. Well, there you have it—a pioneer of wireless mixing, having trouble finding uh, the next generation. <laughs> well, yeah, because the old guys, like you know, 
I don't know if you remember. Uh, you remember the lighting consoles where you had the patch at the patch bay yeah. with those jumper wires? Yeah. I mean, you know, would you? Is there any? Is I there, actually made one myself. Okay. That, that, would you ever go back? You'd never go back. To I know that. I would. You would never go back to that. No. Now with all the digital soft patch on the on your control surface, yep. there's 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 no way. When the digital boards first came out, there was a lot of opposition. Mm-hmm. From from the from the veteran analog guys that you know it's a it's a Midas uh, oh this is gonna haunt me the something four the I bet if you stick your head out oh my God you guys are Midas yeah open up the door <laughs> open, open up the door, the door showrooms and I, right the yeah, end, exactly, right across you know, the wall it, exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know if it isn't but even Midas now has gone all digital. They're, uh, they're, you know, you guys are making spectacular digital boards. I, I actually uh, 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 spec'd a, a uh, for one of my one of my main bands, uh, an M32 because it's just such a great sounding board. That's Midas, and that's mm. all digital. Yeah, you so, really got the crappy mic stand there. Oh, Give I me a see. Second. I I'll see there. Oh, oh, I'll turn it up. I'll use gravity. There we go. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'll do the Julio. So, so so okay so that's where we are now so you're 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 training uh you're training some uh some guy to uh, be able to cover you yeah and, yeah and because you know what i've been doing this a really long time i don't know how much you know how many more miles you know well that was I, I, uh, that was my next question how old are you oh man um I've been doing this for over 35 years, mm-hmm. and I say that because I just hit my 40th anniversary, and you know, Forte <laughs> Sound just turned 40. Wow! Uh, wow! But I hesitate to say 40 years because uh, you'll get used. It'll to make it. it'll make it too obvious that I'm one of the <laughs> geezers in the industry. I'm like, you know, I I don't want people to start calling me pops. Well, you know? I have to ask your age because I by looking at you, I can't I can't tell. Music, see, you know what the music see, business leads. That's keep what you, it does. It'll keep you young, yeah. or, or it'll or it'll age you. Yeah, faster than that's why I keep my hair long because if I cut it, I really look like my age. Yeah, see, that's why I shave mine because if I didn't, you'd know. That's the other uh, solution. Well, you know, between me and you, and don't tell anybody, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm celebrating my 60th in two weeks. Really? Yeah. Really? Wow. Okay. Well, congratulations, man. Thank you. Because you don't look it at all. No, I'll tell you what, man. And I won't tell anybody, but you just did. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) if I. If I won the lottery tomorrow and could retire, I would still I would still mix. Well, yeah. I I uh, I'm not surprised. I I haven't I I don't think I've had a job since 1979. You know that's really how I feel, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm conflicted a little bit because I think that it's responsible for my arrested development. You know <laughs> why I haven't grown up, and, and why I'm I'm not in touch with the. You know the, the my physical condition as much. You know mm-hmm. because in my head, you know I'm still, uh, I I'm still as enthusiastic and and I, I'm I'm passionate about the soundscape because every day this is why I prefer live to studio because every show has a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm-hmm. and and it's live. And if you weren't there to hear it. You know, yeah. it didn't happen. Like if, you know, if you don't hear that tree fall in the forest, you know, did the tree fall? Yeah. It, it's, 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 it's history. It's immediately history. It doesn't live on for better or worse, whether it's the best show you ever did or the worst piece of shit plane crash you've mm. ever had. <laughs> it doesn't matter because, because you get to turn the page and tomorrow's another project and 
And that's what I enjoy the most. It's the, and every day, even though it might be the same act um, with the same repertoire, it's a different room. It's different acoustics. Yeah, it's yeah, a different yeah. it's a different environment, and so, you know, you have to bring you have to bring all those tools to bear nightly. You know, it. Uh, I, I really, you know, it's it really feels more like a hobby, mm. but you know, I've been fortunate enough to. Yeah, I, I have I have one of my friends who's a project manager, and he's living about the same thing you are. He was uh, taking care of shows and productions and all that. And one time he got this compliment from, uh, from the company he was working for. And, uh, the owner of the company says, yesterday you were a God to my client. Today you're an asshole like everybody else. Get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to start over every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it, it keeps your focus. You know, it provides yeah. the adrenaline when you're in a studio you know, you're kind of cloistered in, in this in this isolated environment, uh, which may or may not have a window, and uh, you're you're doing, you know, you're doing the, whatever project the the studio booked, mm-hmm. um, whether you like it or not. Yeah, and and you're doing take after take after take. It, it uh, you know, endless on the same verse. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. there are. There are people that are that are uh, better suited to that. Uh, apparently, I'm like seriously ADD, <laughs> you know, and so I need stimulus because if not, I'll be chasing every squirrel that goes by, you know, and and, and so that that isn't. Uh, I'm not I'm not really as well suited for the studio as I am for live because live, y- you don't have time to take your eye off the ball. You know, there is no, it, oh, no it's the clock sure. is ticking, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, when the doors open, you know, that's it, that's, that's it. it. You know, sound check's over, you ready know, ready or not, ready go. or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's gotta happen. And, and that I, I, I rely on that adrenaline. That's what keeps me focused. And, uh, and, and that's what provides the excitement and the payoff because mm-hmm. with all of that, when everything ends up going your way, you know, the, the adrenaline, uh, there's 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 nothing like it you know this this your show is called backstreet cowboys and you know a, a backstage cowboys <laughs> <laughs> back, back, <laughs> all right um yeah. I, I i i think that i should deliver at least like one one backstage story if not i mean there's there's well, a lot and we haven't gotten into any backstage stories uh well go right ahead uh, okay i mentioned i used to play harmonica I actually yeah. still do. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. In in uh, in 1992, Brian Adams uh, did his uh, Wake Up the Nation tour uh, that that went you know from from the furthest Atlantic coast to the Pacific, mm-hmm. all outdoor big festival shows. Um, I was mixing front of house for Sass Jordan at the time, and uh, the uh, it was uh, Brian Adams. Steve Miller Band, uh, the Archangels, and uh, Sass Jordan. And at the time, and I imagine probably still to this day, because Steve Miller Band is like a family that's been together forever. That's a mm-hmm. really tight-knit bunch. That's a real family. Great, 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 great people. Uh, Norton Buffalo, a guy named Norton Buffalo, harmonica player, uh, that as a harmonica player... I've I've heard 
you know, a lot of work from Norton Buffalo and mm-hmm. and I really I'm a big fan of Norton Buffalo and I didn't know that Norton Buffalo played with Steve Miller until okay. the tour. And and when I discovered, oh man, that's Norton Buffalo on harp. Holy shit. And I told the band and they played a bunch of tracks that he played on. It's like this guy's awesome. And so um unbeknownst to me, they uh they 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 set up a, a, a an introduction so I could, you know, so I could meet this great harp player. So uh so one day uh in the catering tent backstage at one of the we were out west somewhere and uh we're at catering. And the band, the, the guitar, Sass's guitar player, comes up, and says, "Hey, Richie, let me introduce you to somebody." And uh, and he brings me over to uh, to none other than Norton Buffalo. Hmm. And uh, and and so you know we're chatting, and 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 uh, you know I'm, it's a thrill. And and then uh, he said, "Well, y- you play harmonica too." <laughs> And and I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, well, hell. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a harp, and then he leans into me, and he gives me this big toothy grin, and exposing all his teeth, and he had a, it was this hillbilly rotten <laughs> teeth falling out all black and just the worst horror story you've ever seen and he's reaching over and he's passing me a harmonica okay. and I'm and I'm <laughs> and I'm scared to death because oh man like you know um um I'm flat, like harp players don't share that's like sharing a toothbrush you yeah. know you don't you know you don't you don't blow another man's harp because yeah. that's like you might as well use his toothbrush but in addition you know, it, it's like it's like World War One wow. trench foot in his mouth, and and I'm horrified, and I'm trying to think of a way to get out of this. And and while I'm squirming and I'm in shock, a couple of other guys in the band show up, and then uh, they say, "Oh, is this your sound guy? Oh, hey, how are you?" And they you know extend the hand and they smile, and everybody's teeth in the band are just a horror story. <laughs> and and now and and now Sass is Sass is a guitar player. He he can't contain himself anymore, and he busts out laughing because I don't know what I look like, but I was in shock. <laughs> You're terrified. And now and now and now they're all laughing, and then they reach into their mouth and they pull out their very expensive Hollywood teeth. It were it was a gag. Oh shit! They punk oh, me. God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that was that was uh, apparently that was the, the 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 funniest thing that 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 uh, the, and Nick the guitar player. Uh, had ever seen uh and they got me good that was that was <laughs> that was one of the, my more memorable you know backstage moments they uh yeah i'll never forget that um that's uh i'm so glad you pulled that out without me asking <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know it, it, it's uh that's a good pg one yeah <laughs> that one's good for everyone <laughs> been uh we've been going on for one hour 44 minutes oh man you okay this that. is never gonna this make is you're the, gonna have to uh, no. do all kinds of nip and tuck on this thing i'm not doing anything to this i'm gonna let it run as is and you're gonna be the longest running episode ever oh my god sorry about that well you know what i think there might be uh a second part to this eventually because <laughs> <laughs> i feel you got a lot more stories to tell 
you know what? Uh, this is this has been a lot of fun. I, you know what? I, I'm 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 flattered that you you invited me down for a chat. You well, know, uh, I, I'm I'm very glad that you accepted it, it, because I, I, uh, I haven't this had is a, really cool. Yeah, I haven't shared. You know, I haven't shared any of this except with you know like family and the people that really mm-hmm. know me a long time. Uh, it, it's a uh, it's 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 an interesting path that that brought me here and and I'm I'm grateful to so many people that had a part in it and that it's it it all comes down to fate. I mean, you know, you have to you know what I tell boy, you know, every year I, at at one point or another I'll do a show and uh and and someone will come up after the show uh to say something nice about you know the production, mm-hmm. and it'll it'll be some young guy and saying, "Oh man, you know this this is what I want to do," and yeah. and and I can relate. And I remember you know in 1974 looking at that guy on the scaffold. So yep. so you know so this kid will you know mention how you know this is what he wants to do and how do I do this and where do I go and and the the industry's changed so much since you know when I started. When I took that first course in 1975, uh, Recording Institute of America, it wasn't a money-making machine. It wasn't, uh, you know, this was, it mm-hmm. was so niche. It was so small. It was, uh, few people really gave thought to. Uh, making a career out of it. Yeah. Or, or making, or, or offering a course mm-hmm. for the purpose of, you know, making money. Like, you know, commercializing yeah. the, you know, the art uh, it, it's uh, it, it it's changed so much. I I think I benefited the most from starting in the analog era, where it was really about doing the most with the least, mm-hmm. where it was all like as rudimentary as you get. Like if if you got an analog console with a graphic equalizer for the house, uh, two channels of compression, and one reverb unit and one delay unit. That was like, you know, that you were lucky. You had you know, a complete that, kit there. That would that was yeah. pretty. That was complete. Everything yeah. above and beyond that, with all the plug-in, you know, gates and compressors and all that. Anything above that was optional. It wasn't. It wasn't. Mm. It wasn't mandatory. And never in the budget. No, a, a, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You had to. You had to make do, and so you had to. You had to uh, hone your technique and 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 know how to learn how to how to maximize mm-hmm. now we're in the age of low cost digital consoles where everything is integrated and if you were to translate all of the resources available in the desk to a physical rack assuming that each rack each rack space was two channels of processing mm-hmm. you would have um four racks six foot and change Mm. And even that, you might have to go to quad processors per space to equal the processing power of today's digital console. And as a consequence, the guys coming up today have too much available. Mm. And and they they rationalize that, well, you know, if every channel's got a compressor, a gate, and a plug-in available, or two plug-ins available, um, it's because you're supposed to use it. And the the fundamentals they 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 they're they're overlooked mm. they're completely overlooked 
in in favor of the quick fix in the form of a plug-in and i find that um that the art has suffered a lot with all the advancements that i take advantage of and i'll never go back to the analog mm-hmm. but i still believe that less is more yeah and uh and so i i think it's uh it's it's harder in a lot of ways because of that you know it's 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 made it uh it, it's it's made it a bit a bit harder for different reasons but these kids come up and they uh you know they they, they want to do what i do and what they really mean is they want to get behind the desk and push buttons yeah and yep. and they don't want to they they don't want to learn the basics and kind of come up through the ranks mm-hmm. they want to go straight to the glory and uh, and so my response is generally, uh, you know, I'll ask the question. Oh, so yeah, I see. So you want to uh, you want to see the world and make a lot of money and uh, mm-hmm. you know and 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 uh, you know live the life. Huh? And I say, well, you know what? Buy lots of lottery tickets <laughs> because the chances of you buying and hitting on the big one are probably greater than you being able to make a career out of this. Wow. And and I because it's luck. There's mm. just so much. That's the wild card. I was driving a cab. Okay, I was already doing it, and I had already I had put in the time and I learned the well, fundamentals. Yeah. And, and I was you committed. Could have, uh, you could have minded your own business in that cab and never talked to the guy. Also, I, exactly. I mean, you did. Sometimes, you know, I'm not a luck believer. Really, I think that there's opportunities for everybody, and I think that some people recognize. And take advantage of opportunities, and though and and others pass by. I like to, at this point. I like to share everything I know. Mm-hmm. You know, it, um, it it's if I have a a willing you know a willing candidate that uh, that's got the right attitude. Yep. You know, because it really comes down to oh, because we, it, we've talked a, a lot about attitude. Oh, yeah. that, that is first and foremost. But you know, it's, the thing is, now you're becoming an opportunity. I I I I hope so. You know, yeah. I I uh, I'm. We'll see. You know, <laughs> I'm. It, it would be nice. I I I'd like to. I, I'd like to be able to give the opportunity because it is. It is hard to. It is hard to get to this level. There are still a lot of dedicated people out there that really have a passion for it, and mm. got the right stuff. But um, but it's a lot of work. You know. It's a lot of, there's a lot of sweat and a lot of grunt work, you know, that fortunately, and you know, I shouldn't be talking about that because I bypass that, which makes it even more unlikely that someone's going to take the same path. Well, you bypassed it, but you worked for it. You all, I I was just passionate about it. And, and as it turned out, I, you know, I, I had a, I had a talent for it. Mm -hmm. Interesting little anecdote here that, that is just that this really blew my mind. Now, you know, I was born in Cuba. Um, and, uh, and after being involved in this for about 10 years, uh, I, uh, I tried to mansplain to my father, you know, what an equalizer is, mm. you know, I was talking shop and I, you know, and he, he asked me a couple of questions and, uh, and, uh, and, and I, I went on to, well, dad, it's, it's like this, you know. We have this filter set, and there's a different filter for for you know different frequencies across the spectrum, and 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 he he looked at me and he nodded and he said, uh, "Yeah, well, you know, when I was mixing uh, uh, Arturo Toscanini uh, for 
RCA Victor in the 50s. Uh, we used the, uh, and then he went on to tell me his experience as an audio engineer, at which point my face just, it turned to jello and my jaw opened. And then he went on to school me on how it was done back in the day. And I was like, what are you talking about? What? And you didn't RCA know this. I did not, he didn't say a word. And then my mother, oh yes, yes, your father used to, he'd come to New York and do recordings of RCA Victor. And and unbeknownst to me that all the while that I was pursuing this and so passionate about it that in a previous life, uh, and this was, I, I, I no, this wasn't in the 50s. This was, this was earlier. This, this might've been in the 40s. Okay. Um, and, but, but that he, he was in fact a, 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 a an accomplished uh, uh, audio engineer back in the day, and I never knew about it. <laughs> wow! And that just and yeah, and that kind of to this day, you know, you wonder, wow, is it like a, you know, was it predestined? You know, <laughs> in, in the genes because I was because when I, I, I realized that I realized that at, you know fourteen fifteen looking up at you know walking into that arena and seeing that guy sitting up there that, that mm-hmm. this is it, you know, that's, I'm going to do that, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it turns out that, you know, I guess it was just running in your blood. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta wonder, you know, yeah. it, uh, that is, that's the, that's the freakiest that, that was uh, by far along this, this journey, you know, what, that was one of the, the biggest shocks <laughs> that for me was that, uh, that my, my father had a background in this and uh and that he kept it from me maybe because he was hoping i wouldn't pursue it yeah i, I don't know in the yeah. same way that i don't want my kids to you know but my kids are smarter than me so they won't <laughs> they 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 have uh they're 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 uh they they will do they they will follow a different path well yeah but whatever i mean my son didn't follow in my footsteps although he does have talent he's a drummer he's a guitarist he loves music he loves anything that has to do with music and strangely enough never did it professionally and uh turned into a car pimper so whatever man <laughs> is that is that selling or and, customizing no he's customizing okay. he customizes like ambulances and uh, and cop cars and oh, SWAT, yeah. SWAT cars and whatever yeah yeah and uh, it's funny because probably if i had been doing that i wouldn't want my son to do it but <laughs> yeah <laughs> Whatever, man. Whatever makes you happy. You know? <laughs> Bottom line. Well, I guess this is uh, this is the end for now. Thank you, Claude. But something tells me we're going to be back on the air again. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richie. Thank you. Buddy. It's been it's been a great pleasure, and uh, we're going to get a lot of feedback from this one. I'm, oh, I, I don't I'm think anybody certain. else hit through this whole thing, but you know, if you do, God bless you. <laughs> well, I'll make an introduction to make sure people sit through it. All right. It's really worth it. Take care, man. Thanks a lot. See you soon. Bye. Well, that was the end of the longest running interview I've done so far. Uh, the special thanks to AVL Media Group and Avil Lights, who, in my opinion, make the best lighting consoles in the world. If you'd like to try one out, just give me a call or reach me via BackstageCowboys.com. This is Claude Vien returning you to whatever you were doing before signing in. Stand by, orchestra people, and go!